Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by FreshBooks. They're the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just go to freshbooks.com slash TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week on TWIP, Nikon reveals a new mirrorless camera, the Nikon 1 J5. This new camera features 4K video, well, kind of. Also, Novo offers the first lens filters to feature super hard Gorilla Glass and Sapphire Crystal Glass. And also a roundtable discussion on the current state of video tools. It's Tuesday, April 7th, 2015, and this is TWIP. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today to discuss some of the cool things happening in photography and other cool nieces are my two friends, Mr. Lee Herbert and Mr. Martin Bailey. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, Frederick. Yeah. Hey, Martin, you can't, you can't just wave because we're doing audio here. So. <laughs> are you a podcaster? Come on, dude. Hey, I was I spoke. I must have been uh, I must have disappeared into the ether or something. You disappeared. <laughs> you disappeared. Cool. All right. Well, let's do this. Uh, this is going to be an interesting interesting show. We got a ton of stuff to dive into. I'm looking forward to getting both of your opinions on the topics that you both have seen because I see you in the show notes right now lurking. But before we do that, I want to thank our first sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo. That's our good friends over at FreshBooks.com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to FreshBooks.com TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, we use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or, you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds and expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. 
Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP, enter the code This Week in Photo or TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. And here's a quick look at what's happening this week on the TWIP Network. First of all, we've got a brand new Facebook group. Please come over and join it now. You can find it at thisweekinphoto.com slash Facebook. And over on Street Focus, Valerie sits down for some Q&A with Foco Mueller. And on The Fix, Jan dives into Photoshop texture blending with Alan Shapiro. And finally, over on Your Itinerary, a visit by the godfather of photography, Mr. Rick Salmon himself. All that and more is happening this week on the TWIP Network. You can subscribe to any or all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe. All right, let's jump into story number one. Uh, this is going to be interesting. I really want to hear what both of you guys have to say about this. So let me read the little blurb we have in the show notes. It says, uh, Nikon has just officially announced its new Nikon 1J5 mirrorless camera. It's a camera that offers 4K or video recording and some blazing fast continuous shooting in a single compact package. Um, so on the this is interesting. So on the video recording side, the camera does shoot 4K video, which is good. But the bad side of that coin is that that 4K video can only be captured apparently at 15 frames per second. So I'm like. Why? Anyway, so <laughs> I mean, what, what Nikon says. Let me skip down in the notes because they said something about that. They said something about that. It the reason that they're only letting it shoot 4K at 15 is because this is for people that want to experiment with 4K footage. So why would you experiment <laughs> with 4K? Why not just shoot it? Yeah. Anyway, so at lower resolutions, the camera can do 1080 at 60p as well as 120 frames per second slow motion at 720. Um, if you want to shoot time lapses, it's got a time lapse movie mode that allows you to capture up to 300 photos and play them back in 10 seconds, which is kind of cool. And there's also an intervalometer, which Nikon is famous for slapping on most of their cameras. And that's if you want to if you want to put together that time lapse video afterward, Lee Herbert. Uh, and finally, the camera has Wi-Fi and NFC for wireless connecting to other devices. You know, like many cameras that we see, kind of a it's kind of like a status quo thing with mirrorless cameras these days. So, uh, Martin Bailey, I want to start with you on this Nikon One. Every time we have a new camera and we talk about it and you're on the show, Martin, I ask you this. I'm like, Martin, is this something you'd get? And I know what you're going to say. You're like, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to get it because I'm sticking with my Canon for now until something really compelling pries me away from it. Same thing here? Um, yeah. <laughs> so at least, I got, at least I got to start my answer with a yes instead of a no. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think it's – I mean – the the camera itself is it it looks great you know I like the retro feel I think that the you know 60 frames per second you could almost I don't know what the buffer is on it um I I wouldn't imagine it's very long but um you know there's there's uses for this camera uh the the reason that I'm not buying into any system other than what I've currently got at the moment is is purely financial you know I mean I I because I've got I'm a I'm a wildlife and nature photographer it means I need long lenses with with the best autofocus mm -hmm. and i've 
I've seen people come on my workshops with some of the best mirrorless cameras that are available at the moment and they struggle. So right now I think that there's there are parts of my shooting that I just can't do with mirrorless cameras, but that doesn't mean I don't like them. I would love to reduce my weight, you know, not body weight, although that would be good as well. Um, but the, uh, the, you know, just the, being able to carry around a whole kit in, in just a, a few pounds is, a, is very enticing. So there'll be a time when I'll do it. And I'll probably buy so. I mean, I probably wouldn't buy a Nikon. Um, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, you're not even allowed no, I'm, to I'm say that word, are you? I'm being silly, but uh, no. I mean, I I probably I, I will buy into something for probably my landscape work. Um, the problem with that at the moment, of course, is that Canon have just announced the 50 megapixel 5DS and SR. So. Yeah. You know, for me, for even for landscape work, I think I'm going to be stuck with my heavy gear for a while longer. Um, but yeah. I, I do think, I mean, this this looks like a great camera. I think I agree that the the 4K is a little bit. You no, know, I mean, I have some of the the I think the Hero Three uh, GoPro cameras that shot that supposedly shot 4K, but that was at 15 frames per second as well on that on that version, and. Honestly, I never I never used it because you can't really use 15k video for for very much. Uh, sorry, um, like 15 frame frames per second. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it just doesn't look right. So you know, experiment. Put something in the camera to give people a chance to experiment with it. It sounds like you know. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it sounds like, but it's a bit uh, it's a bit duff in, in my opinion. I know. I, no, I would no. Rather do it. Lee, Lee, I want to I want to jump to you on this, but Martin, you you mentioned something when you first started talking about. Uh, mirrorless cameras not doing, or like in your experience and on your workshops and that, mirrorless cameras not being able to do the job. What, where are they falling down? At? I'm curious. It's only, it's only for um, wildlife, very fast-paced yeah. shooting, birds in flight, stuff like that. Um, on my landscape workshops, I mean, it, Doug Kay was there with his Sony last in in Iceland with me last year. Works fine, you know. So it's really when you need very long glass and extremely fast autofocus so that's that's the only place really the weatherproofing there there are mirrorless systems that have pretty good weatherproofing as well so that's no longer an issue and um, it's really just it, it's very long glass or very you know, very long focal length lenses and lightning fast autofocus that's still not quite there yeah all right. Well, this is this is good. And folks, if you're watching us live here and you're on the YouTube page, there's a little chat box off to the right there. So if you want to jump in on the conversation and ask us questions, please feel free to do that. If you are obviously watching this in the replay or listening to the audio after the fact, probably ain't going to work. So Lee Herbert, <laughs> uh, first off, welcome to the show. I want to dive right into this with you. So you recently did time-lapse webinar for This Week in Photo. So thank you for doing that. So you are our resident expert on time-lapse photography. When you saw this camera, did you did you rush in and place an order, or are you still on the fence? What's the Lee Herbert uh, prognosis? I did not rush in and get it. First of all, let's start off with the 4K, because video yeah. is my bag, and this does not shoot 4K. If you say it shoots at 15 frames per second, that's like saying, oh, we've developed this really cool feature with this camera. It shoots RG with no B. <laughs> yeah. That's so you can experiment with color. Yeah, yeah. Because 15 frames per second is not video. Video needs to be at least 24 frames per second. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 like waking up on your 18th birthday and your parents have promised to buy you a car because you need something that can carry four people. You go outside, and there's a motorbike. You're like, that's that's not going to carry four people. Like, sure it can. Put two people, two people on the shoulders. You carry. No, no, it can't. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I get it that the marketing department probably got on their high horse and they were like, no, we should say it shoots 4K at 15 frames per second. That's like Canon's marketing department coming out with this new 50 megapixel camera going, it shoots 57Ks at one frame per second. Right, right. <laughs> but why why would they... I mean, I understand the, the marketing piece of this. Like, okay, we want to jump on that 4K bandwagon because Sony and um, Panasonic and... Samsung, you know, everybody's jumping, you know, or jumping on this bandwagon with 4K, if indeed it is a bandwagon. But why, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to understand what, what the thought process is and why they couldn't put true and proper 4K in there when cam smaller mirrorless cameras like the Lumix LX100 shoots 4K properly. You know, why why can't this thing do it? Or why did they hobble it like this, Lee? Well, I'm, I'm guessing... Um... I'm guessing it's just laws of physics because in order to record 4K, I mean, if, if you think about what the camera is actually doing, is it's capturing, you know, an 8 megapixel image, but it's capturing at least 24 of them every second. And mm -hmm. it's got to do that for seconds, minutes, however long. That's a lot of work for the processor and the camera because at the end of the day, digital cameras these days, they're computers. And, it, it you know, there, there'd be issues with overheating and... Um, writing on the buffer to the card and through the BIOS of the thing, and so so there's just I, I think it's probably just a technical thing that they just couldn't do 4K recording in a body that size where it was working. Um, I, I mean, there's also because they, they were able to do 60 frames per second though. Thank you. That's like saying Nikon's <laughs> well, engineers are not as smart as Panasonic's engineers somehow, or they're using a different kind of math. Or something. Well, I don't know. Well, no, cause, well, well, it's interesting, Martin, because I read that thing about the 60 frames per second as well. I wonder how long it could keep it up. You know, if you put your finger yeah. down on the trigger and held it, right. that's probably going to keep it up for, you know, it's not going to keep it up for more than 10 seconds. If that I, much, I would, so, I would be I would be impressed if it could do even ten seconds. I mean, that's like I'm yeah. saying. I'm not sure what the buffer size is. So I'm sure that I'm sure that it's it's you know related to what you're saying Lee it's it's obviously got to be something like that some sort of a technical limitation but it just seems strange that they're boasting 60 frames per second bursts on one end and then crippling it on the other end um, with the video it's like you know sh surely guys you you've got enough a, a fat enough bus in there to get 60 yeah. frames onto the card over the space of a second I mean it's obviously going to take take longer than that to write to the card but 60 frames in one second is a lot of data. So, you know, it seems as though they're pushing the envelope on one side and then just letting letting it get all, I don't know, wet and soggy on the other. Yeah. Well, you see, this ca this camera looks like the, it. It almost looks like a, a beta test of some technologies because mm. it's interesting, yeah. Martin, that you said, um, you know, uh, that the focus is is a is is a big problem for you with mirrorless cameras. And in the blurb, they talk down later on about how it's got this really cool focusing system where it mm. will, you know, they, they mention sport photography in particular, where mm. I think, again, I'm completely guessing, I've got no idea, but I think maybe what happened is Nikon's engineers went to this and went, okay, what are people complaining about with mirrorless cameras? Let's try and fix those things and put them into one camera and see what happens. Mm. And yeah. people were complaining about too many frames per second on 4K, so they fixed it by, by yeah. cutting it we down want, to 15. Yeah. 
we want our videos to look more like time lapse. So let's let, let's see how that works out. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know. So in the yeah. chat room, uh, Vaughn Arthur uh, Arthur said heat and battery usage um, using that kind of power. So he's he's saying that it's a technical limitation. There, mm. kind of like what no, you we, said, Martin. I think, but. I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that because other cameras do it. Like the LX100 that I have, my favorite camera currently, it's a, it's like a professional level point and shoot. I use that guy everywhere I go, you know, and I've done full length interviews with that recording 4K video directly to the card. It's fine, you know, and mm. then I flip it off and go take pictures later and it's, it's great. It does it, and it does it without breaking a sweat or crashing or anything. So why can't but I come? Do you also... But do you see something else that they don't talk about that I couldn't find in, in the details on this camera is what codecs they're using. So particularly with video, what compression you're using to create those video files is going to make a difference in terms of how hard the camera's working. So the Panasonic codecs are really good from one point of view because when it, like I know I've got the GH4 sitting here on my desk and mm -hmm. it does 4K and the files are surprisingly not huge. Right. right. And that's because of the, the compression that they're using but obviously that means that you're not getting as much data so when you bring it into post you've got less to work with. So maybe it's you know, got something to do with the codec that they've decided to use for video, the camera wasn't going to be powerful enough to do that in 4K. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Nikon apologist. I'm just, I want to look at it from both sides. Yeah, I mean, we want to give them a fair shake. And we're, you know, we don't have any insight into the, the, the Nikon R&D development department or anything. Uh, but we're just speculating off of what we, what we see. But, you know, still, with that speculation, I'm maintaining that, if it was a technical barrier, you know, that's gonna, you know, Lee to use what to use an analogy. Lee Herbert is the analogy master. To use an analogy, it'd be like, you know, the 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 uh, Russians put send Sputnik into orbit, right? And then the United States says, you know, we're not gonna go into orbit. We're just gonna go up and come down because we can't really figure out how to go into orbit yet. You know, it's like it's been done, dude. Just copy what they did and either make it better or do something different. Why can't Nikon copy what? Or, you know, copy what the other guys, the Samsungs, the Sonys, the Panasonics are doing with 4K. Go do some corporate espionage. Steal that code and put it, <laughs> put it in you your know, camera. I, I, think, I think what's, I mean, it, it almost certainly is coming down to something that they chose to put in the camera that is not, it's like, I mean, we know that, you know, there, there's Ferraris out there and there's, there's Mini Coopers, you know, yeah. both great cars for what they do. But just because you can go, you know, 300 miles an hour in a Ferrari it doesn't mean that you have to put that functionality in the Mini. It's, yeah, that's true. So it's, it's, it's available. It's available, but it's you know the, the 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 engine that you decide to put in. It's it's probably because they've they've chosen to put some some part that they've used is not capable of doing the of doing the you know moving that much data at that speed. Right. Like Lee's yeah. saying, but I I think it's you know in general to be fair, I mean the camera itself. It looks as though there's some fun stuff on there. Mm -hmm. They, you know, I, I'm, if the autofocus is as snappy as they're saying it is, I'm not sure. I mean, they're talking about for the 60 frames per second, for example, you've got to lock the focus down. It won't focus at 60 frames per second, um, but they are saying it will. It will at 20 frames per second, and that's still pretty impressive. So, depending on what you want to do with the camera, um, you know, I mean, I, I doubt. Looking at the information we've got at the moment, I doubt you're going to be able to put this on a really long lens. Maybe you can. Maybe there'll be some adapters. Um, so, you know, there, there are pro probably some areas where this camera is going to be a lot of fun to shoot with. Um, 
I think you know concentrating too much on the fact that it's crippled the 4K is yeah. perhaps uh, is gonna you know I mean it I think it's 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 a bit of a mistake in my opinion I think a lot of people are going to agree that if you're going to put 4K in there it should be at least 24 frames a second um, but you know or, I'm sure the marketing wise marketing wise maybe maybe stand on some of the other tentpole features of the product and not put 4K in the forefront and instead make it a discoverable thing, right? So in other words, bury it and talk about all this other cool stuff that it can do so folks like us don't get fixated on the 4K and why they hobbled right. it. And right. instead put it in there and then when people find it, you can say, oh yeah, we're just, we're experimenting and we wanted to give it to you. <laughs> so yeah. we put it in there. It only does 15 right now, but you know, we're looking at increasing that later. That would have been an easier yeah, pill to swallow than leading mm -hmm. with it. Hey, it shoots 4K, and then with an asterisk at 15 frames a second. Do Do we well, know? I mean, we're we're looking at the petapixel um, blog post here. Do we know that it's been announced with fit with 4K uh, in the front? You know, or or are Nikon talking about we this? No, we nah. don't know that. Yeah. So I mean, that that we don't really know how they're going to market it. So maybe they maybe they will. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll watch this, and their marketing department will scramble and change their messaging. <laughs> Quick, get the whiteout! Get the whiteout! Exactly. Pull those PDFs back from the press. Send them the revised one with the Twip edition too. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. The other, the other thing of this is the J. So this is the Nikon One J5 mirrorless camera. Maybe they're saving, and this is classic for marketers, right? Uh, the Nikon One J6 maybe will have. You know, full full on 4K frame rate and all this other cool stuff. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll dive into it. I mean, you know, I, Doug Doug um, will review this on all about the gear, I'm sure, at some point and dive into the details on it. And we'll figure out what all that means. So crazy, yeah, think, crazy I think, stuff. I think until until it actually released and we actually get to see some some photos and footage off of it, it's going to be difficult to judge. But even looking at all the other features, I looked at it and said, ah, you know what, I, I was trying to work out who this camera was for. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, well maybe if you're a, a, a Nikon DSL shooter and you, you've been thinking of jumping into the mirrorless world, this this is a nice kind of safety blanket. It's a, it's a safe step to take. But a little bit of background. I, mean, I, I jumped into the mirrorless world and got rid of my Canon DSLRs about a year ago, my last one actually I sold just a few months ago. And I look at that and go, but the thing is when you compare it to the other stuff that's in the mirrorless world at the moment, for the price range that it is, you know what, for another hundred bucks, another hundred and fifty bucks, you could get something so much better with a wider selection of lenses and things like that. And I, I think maybe particularly with you know, maybe I, I find Canon and, and Nikon in particular, they're so fixated in their little worlds, almost like you know how Bill Gates wouldn't let his kids have iPods, so you don't know what the other people are doing. And, you know, in their world, they're like, well, this is sort of like the next step because people don't want to change. People have Nikon, so they've got all of our lenses, so we'll give them something to stay within our ecosystem. Whereas, at least with my example, I don't care. Like, you know, I've got I've got an A7S, I've got a GH4, I've got a Blackmagic, and I've got Canon lenses, I've got Panasonic lenses. I, you know, have adapter will travel, so... Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting step, but I wonder who their demographic is that they're targeting this camera at. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. I mean, we'll we'll find out. But you know, it's I'm just happy that they're doing something. You know, they're they're may, there's movement there. You know, <laughs> so yeah. you know that's exciting. I'm I'm happy that they're not just you know there's it won't be another. Hopefully, it won't be another full year of 
you know, WTF Nikon. You know, we want to see some. I want to see some products out of these guys. All right, guys. So let's move on to this next story. Um, this is this is kind of an interesting story. Um, it's not it's not too deep, but this company called Novo um, is getting ready to launch a new line of camera lens filters for photographers, and this lineup will include the world's first filter to use sapphire crystal glass, and other filters will feature gorilla glass. So this is this is really interesting because uh, from the standpoint of you know, folks like both of you guys, you're out and about all the time shooting in sometimes less than hospitable environments. Um, my Traditionally, my thought on filters were, unless you're doing something like reducing the light with a neutral density filter or polarizing or, you know, something like that, putting introducing more glass in front of this expensive lens that you saved up for <laughs> to put on your camera before it's sharpness, and then you go put this, you know either inexpensive or expensive piece of glass in front of it kind of seemed like a non-starter for me. Uh, some people say that's that's backwards thinking because you spend all this money on this lens and then you drop it. If you don't have a filter on it, the lens is now garbage. But, you know, on the other hand, your photos are a little bit softer. I don't know. Uh, Lee, what, what do you think? Gorilla glass, is it, or filters in general in this one that is made of this, like, bulletproof space-age glass, Is it? are these going to find their way onto your cameras? I'm I'm definitely it's piqued my interest because I'm I'm in the same camp as you where I with my time lapse stuff I use a variable NDs and, and standard ND yeah. filters a lot because I do a lot of long exposures during the day, yeah. but you know I, I won't leave it on the camera all day long and also with video um, you do need to use NDs more but I won't leave the, the the filter on my lens unless I need to leave it on my lens. Um, having said that, I have had some damage to a camera and a lens once where you pick up the, your camera bag and you hear that unmistakable sound of glass moving around like, oh, that's not good. And thankfully it was the filter. So I, I, I could definitely see both sides of it. It took me hours to get all the shards of glass out of it. Anyway, long story. And so so definitely if if they can develop, like on the one hand, having you know bulletproof glass, that's great. But more interestingly, further down in the article, they talk about how sapphire glass apparently lets in 99.9% of light. So yeah. theoretically, it should not give you any sort of color casts or any sort of – the kind of issues that you can get with filters, it's going to drop that. So look, the, the bulletproofness of it is nice, but for me, the selling point of these – and I'll, I'll definitely pick one, at least one up to, to have a play with it. Um, it, it's more going to be, is it going to affect my image? And if it's going to affect my image less than other filters are, I'm all for it. I want to see, I want to see measurements of that 99.9% light transmission. Cause that, the only thing that I know, know that transmits 99.9% .9 of light is air. You know, so now, you know, you're putting some physical object there. It seems like, you know, you can't, you can never be completely transparent. Martin, you're out in the middle of nowhere from time to time, and you put your cameras through heck, I'm sure. So mm -hmm. is this uh, is this Gorilla Glass? Is it a necessity for your camera bag, or is it just more money to spend? Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the opposite camp in that I have protector filters on all of my lenses. The only, the only lenses I don't have protectors on are things like the, um, the, the super wide angle lenses With where the you've got the, yeah. I mean, you, if you've if you've got a lens that has um, has a, a protruding front element, then you can't put them on. But everything else, um, I've got a, a protector filter on. 
And um, what's the reasoning for that? Just for protection, but not for not for UV reduction? It's no. I mean, for UV reduction. I I've not not really. I actually don't even buy UV filters as much. I've got a few on some older lenses. Um, normally, I just buy a protector. Um, but I I buy. I buy good quality ones. I mean, sometimes my my protector filters can be um, 50, 50, 60 bucks. So, mm-hmm. I mean, even even for the for the protectors, I, I always buy a good brand. I generally buy Kenko, um, and I think they're marketed as Hoya in uh, in the US. Um, I buy the top of the range, so I make sure that I do get the best. I mean, I'm just looking at the the Kenko Zeta filters that I use. They have 99.7 percent. Um, you know the the what is it transparency? So I mean you're already you're pretty actually I'm not sure if that's these all say 99.7. I'm not sure if that's the UV cut or the or the light. It's it's the same UV filters as the the ones that we're looking at um, at the moment. But um I but I use them because I I mean I, again I I've I've seen people who have gouged you know walking around somewhere you slip you hit the front of the lens on a rock. You you catch it on something you you know there, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen and it just it, it generally these things happen when you're in the middle of nowhere and you would lose fo- you'd lose shots if you didn't get them um, I think that you know if you if you actually did get some damage the the problem that I I uh, you know I often hear about the you know why put I mean as you just said yourself Frederick why put extra glass in front I just haven't noticed a any degradation in the image quality with them on, so I just leave okay. them on unless I have to take them off to put another filter on, like an ND or something. And that um, says a lot because you you make gigantic prints. So, and if you haven't seen any degradation, then you know hmm. I don't know I, that there is any. I I definitely wouldn't put a cheap filter on the front. I always buy the best. I buy ones that have got anti-glare coatings and things like that. If I get some sort of a a ghosting or glare that I notice when I'm shooting into the sun. I'll sometimes remove the filter and see if it makes it any better. Quite often it doesn't. It's the lens that's doing that rather than the filter. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's really not that big a thing. I, I, I'm also, I get my lenses wet a lot. I'm often in around sea spray. And sea spray, it's, I've actually ruined old protector filters. It's not such an issue now, but old protector filters, I've ruined them with sea spray. They just get so far in there that even wiping them with alcohol and and lens cleaning tissues couldn't get it out. So I was at that time. I was thinking, well, I'm happy that's the filter that I can replace for for 50 bucks rather than a, um, you know, the front element of the lens. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm for protector filters. I don't think I'm I'm not the sort of person that's going to go around saying everybody should have these on because I know some people don't like them and and that's fine. It's it's yeah. we all it's make subjective. our own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Um, I wonder if the argument is akin to you remember the whole raw versus JPEG debate. Um, if it's if it's yeah you know, or or in in other words, when I think about putting a filter on my lens, I think about I think about that raw versus JPEG, and the reason that I shoot raw most of the time, even for you know happy snaps or whatever, is because again we purchased this really expensive camera body or camera, and the for me raw and, uh, and technically raw represents the best that you can get in the, a given situation from the light rays that are captured on that sensor and written to the disk so you mm-hmm. get you know it's like all the information that you could possibly get in that instance is written to the disk you know uh, or to the to the card 
And when I think about putting a filter on that, especially in the micro four thirds world, I'm like, okay, you know, this little sensor is doing enough work as it is. Why am I going to put yet another hurdle in front of him to getting good resolution? So why am I going to block those light rays that are coming in, even if it's only 0.01%, you know, um, or, and if I'm going to shoot JPEG, why am I going to limit the quality of the image on the back end when I can do it later? I don't know. I don't know. Lee, what, what do you think about that? Does that does is that argument ridiculous, or should I be shooting yes. JPEG with a filter on my camera? No, that argument is ridiculous because I think. Sorry. <laughs> wait, wait. Should, should I be holding you back and not telling you what I really think? No, I want to hear it all. I mean, you know, that might be the title of this episode, Frederick. That argument is ridiculous. <laughs> I think I think using the JPEG in the raw comparison isn't exactly fair because you know the the amount of difference that a filter could potentially make to your image is negligible. Um, whereas if you shot something in JPEG and if you shot something in raw, you have captured a lot more information in that raw image. So when you want to manipulate it later on, you do have a lot more to work with. So I, I'm not sure if that comparison um, really works so well. I, I don't know. Martin's almost convinced me because. You know, I, I used to shoot with, with the filters and, and I took them off actually probably about a year ago and I, I pretty much only use the ND filters now. But, you know, I really haven't noticed that much difference. So, mm. I mean, to be honest, the reason why I haven't put the filters back on is just because I've, I've been lazy and, well, let's, no, no, damn it, I've been busy. Yeah, I've been too busy to put them back on. That's why. <laughs> Are we doing marketing? You know, you're not, replace all the lazies with busy. That's all you got to say and you're good. <laughs> I'm not lazy. I'm efficient. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just occupied. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm, uh, this is a really good conversation because this is if I was gonna put filters on my lenses, they would be sapphire crystal or gorilla glass. So, that's so no, no, that's the you. thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'd love to try these. I think the it's interesting that the there are some tests that they show how sapphire is actually more brittle than glass. Um, so for a, for a, sh a quick impact, I'm not sure that it, it's the best thing to use. For the the light transmission, for sure, it's got to be better. But you know, when you're talking less than a, a percentage of light, I'm not sure it's going it, to. For me, it'll depend on how much these are. I think if they're, I don't know, if they're 200 bucks, I might not. I might not buy one. If they're 70 or 80, I might. Yeah. Well, they, they they were saying they're gonna be between the they quoted pounds, but if you convert it to US dollars, I think it was between eighty and one hundred and seventy, one hundred and eighty US. Mm. Oh yeah, I see that at the bottom there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd pro I'd probably consider them. I knowing me, I mean, if I if I actually believe that these are better than what I'm currently currently using, I'll probably get it because I I hate the thought of using something when there's something better out there. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a bit of an idiot on that in that respect. So yeah, I'm in the I, same uh, club, Martin. Don't worry. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I mean, I'll probably give these a try. Um, I think it's it's interesting. The other thing that I've I've been really looking at, at a lot is the uh, is it hydrofolic uh, coatings where they, they, they there's uh, I think Tokina I think it is 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 releasing some filters that just hate water so when you get water on them they, it, it beads and drops off really quickly nice. um, cool. that would be really nice in places like Iceland when you're shooting in waterfalls and things yeah. uh, you know it rains all the time and you, you're in, in spray constantly um, I'm not sure how good they're going to be at getting rid of it but I'm interested in that as well and I did I did see something in this uh, in this article about 
the um, you know water resistance or, or something like that as well. So hopefully there'll be some of that uh, happening. But I would know, love it, that. It, yeah. Yeah, I just thought of a potential problem there because what if it's resistant to water but not to salt? So that means if it's seawater, <laughs> all the water gets off and now your lens is covered in salt. That's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. That be interesting. I've seen videos with that, you know, sort of dem scientific demonstration videos with that coating where it actually physically repels water. Does it? It's not just resistant; it actually wow. pushes it out of the way. Uh, and mm. when I saw those videos, I was thinking, man, wouldn't that be cool if your camera was dipped in that stuff? You know, so. <laughs> Like the next generation, the next generation of weather sealing, you're still weather sealed, but then you have this extra layer of protection, protection where you could like, you know, throw your camera in a, in a bucket of water and all the water leaves the bucket or something. It's like mentos <laughs> in a bottle of Coke. Yeah, awesome. I was like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. So, I want to shoot that in slow motion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, I love these kind of innovations because it's like they're, they're polishing up the edges. Like, I mean, there was nothing wrong, I guess, with filter technology before they came out with this, but it just makes sense now, especially with, with all these smartphone manufacturers using Gorilla Glass on the devices, watches, and phones, and tablets, and all that. It only makes sense for these for that technology to make it down into places that actually needed a lot, you know, on the front of lenses as well. So, interesting. So, kudos to the folks over at Novo and our friends at Petapixel for the article. Alright, guys, so this next thing I wanted to chat with you about is... Um, this, and, and Lee, this is one of the main reasons why you're on the show, because it's, uh, it's about video. So the it's whole idea... Well, no. No, not really. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, your face is perfect for an audio podcast. So anyway... So, so Always had a you, face for radio, yeah. With you for audio podcasting. we got to update <laughs> it. Um, so when we, look at, when we look at the tools that are out there for video, you know, like we talked about these cameras, like the first story we talked about was the Nikon um, with the 4K video, the quote 4K video on there. Photographers in increasing numbers are moving into video or finding it necessary to learn how to use video and and all that that entails. It's not just push, push, pushing the, the red button, it is also pushing the red button and having a fast enough card to read it or to write it depending on the resolution of the video that you're capturing. It's storage considerations because you're creating a lot of data where does that data go it's editing it and software which is the the crux of this conversation so when you start focusing in on the tools if you're a photographer and you're like you know what I finally figured out Photoshop finally now I want to do video yeah of course Photoshop does video but is that the right tool Lee I want, Lee, I want to start with you on this when photographers say photographers are a photographers watching this and you're like yeah he's speaking to me I need to learn how to do video, but I'm a Lightroom, Aperture, or Photoshop person. What's the best tool for me? Is, should it, is it iMovie? Is it Sony Vegas? Is it Final Cut Pro, Premiere? What do you think? Like That's the, the basis of this. What's the, the best tool or the current state of tool options for photographers today, Lee? I think from a tool point of view, we're spoiled for choice. So the, the best tool is very much like the best camera. It's the one you have with you. So yeah. I'd say don't don't go crazy and go out and buy something right away. You, if, if you're just starting off, because the, the very basics of editing is taking one video clip and another video clip and either cutting bits off or adding stuff on and then gluing them together. And that's, that's the very basics. And that's all you need for the basics. So to get started, if you've got a Mac, you've got iMovie on there. If you've got a Windows PC... You've got Movie Maker. You see, I said that without even sniggering. <laughs> if you've got... 
Some people still use that app. Don't 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 get hate mail, man. I'm telling you. It's just because a lot. Hey, look, it's like hairspray. Just because people use it doesn't make it right. That's right. That's right. So I use it. All, I use it all the time. So yeah, me too. <laughs> <On your laughs> Martin's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but yeah. You know, yeah. If, if if you've got a smartphone, edit it on your smartphone. You know, there's there's, there's apps that you can do. So I'd say for for just getting started, mm-hmm. use whatever you've got. When you get more advanced, um, yeah, then it comes down to what you've got. You know, so if you've got Premiere already, so you know, if you if you subscribe to Adobe and you've got Premiere, and Premiere doesn't look too scary because if you haven't got experience in editing. Premiere can be very scary and very intimidating. Mm-hmm. If you want something less scary and intimidating, I think Final Cut is fantastic for getting started because the entry level in terms of the learning curve is a lot less steep in Final Cut, so it's a lot easier to get in and get started. In terms of further down, you don't have to worry that, oh, I'm using Final Cut, but then when I want to do real editing, I'll need to get something else. Final Cut is a real video editor. You can do everything that you'll ever need to do. In fact, there was just a, a whole big thing on Apple's website that the latest Will Smith movie, Focus, was all done in Final Cut Pro 10. Cool, cool. Yeah. Now, I wonder, I mean, because that, that is the big question. I mean, there's a there's a couple of questions that pop up when you start asking these kinds of uh, questions. And the I think it comes, I actually did an episode with, uh, God, I can't remember, the with Chris Finwick on his Final Cut Pro show. And we were or Final Cut Ten. We were talking about the, it, the the title of the show was Final Cut for Photographers or something like that. Um, and the path of least resistance for us moving for us photographers moving into it. And the questions that I posed were a, which is better? I mean, I'm a member of the Creative Cloud. I subscribe to the Creative Cloud, so I already have the bits for Premiere on my hard drive. Or and if I don't, I can get them. A. So why should I? go into Final Cut if I already have the bits for a perfectly good video editor available to me now, and it doesn't seem like Adobe's going away anytime soon. Um, on the other hand, Apple just put Aperture on the firing line, right? And now there's Final Cut. So at, when I'm talk, when I was talking to him, I was like, you know, that makes me a little timid of investing. Yeah, they could be very capable apps right now, but which one will be around in 2015 or 2020 or whatever when I'm really into this stuff is Apple going to pull the rug out from underneath me again and say you know what you know all that marketing we put into Final Cut yeah we didn't mean it we're moving in this other direction I don't know <laughs> well, you, I've got, I, I know you have an yeah, answer I've, to that I've got I've, I've got two things for you number one are you driving a, a car at the moment that uses gasoline uh, unfortunately yes well why everything's going electric so you know you use what's right for you at the moment. So, so let's let's use that analogy at first. Um, okay. But secondly, Lee, I got to tell you that is a flawed analogy. But <laughs> I had to get that in there. But continue. Oh, okay, back, back it up. <laughs> no, go ahead, continue. Okay, um, but but the other thing is, and again, I I so full disclosure. I'm an ex-Apple employee. I'm a Final Cut Pro certified Final Cut Pro master trainer. This is you're asking me. I'm, I'm biased. There's there's no yeah. doubt about it. Hey, I'm an ex-Apple but, employee as well. So and I'm asking the hard questions. So you know it's all good. 
but particularly in terms of, you know, is Final Cut Pro still a pro application? It is absolutely still a pro application. But I actually think Apple made a very interesting move when they went. The reason why a lot of there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth in 2011 when Apple moved from Final Cut Pro 7 to Final Cut Pro 10 is that they changed the workflow. That was the biggest thing, that professional video editors were looking at it going, it doesn't work the way that I'm used to working. Now, they did leave a lot of functions out that they've now brought back. So there was very justifiable complaints back then. But I think what Apple did, and I don't know, but I'm, I'm guessing, and I've spoken to some people inside of Apple and they've kind of confirmed this, but they don't confirm anything, is that, you know, they could continue to make Final Cut Pro for, you know, the 50,000 professional editors in the world that were using it, or they could change it. Some people would say dumb it down. I would say simplify it and make it more accessible. Yeah. And now, instead of the 50,000 Pro editors around the world, there's over a million people using Final Cut Pro 10. And those people are photographers, doctors, lawyers. It's people who have got these cameras that shoot video and they want to do more than iMovie does. But it's still got all the functions that the pros do. So in terms of will it go away, hey, hey, they could pull the plug tomorrow. But at the moment, it's a fantastic product. And I think specifically for the audience of this podcast who are not professional video editors but want to do professional video editing – that's exactly who Final Cut Pro 10 was made for. Yeah, yeah, it's the people without the legacy of experiment, experience behind them, right? Or the, the, uh, the, you know, baggage. I don't know, the, baggage. the, the baggage. Thank you, thank you. The baggage <laughs> of experience. You come in fresh, and you don't have those learning pathways already established using timelines and all that. No, I, I totally get it. And that's who I was. I mean, I, I understand the timeline. I was somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, I, I have. I don't have as much experience editing video as you do, Lee, but I know my way around a timeline, and I can I can cut simple things together. Um, and when I saw, you know, full disclosure, when I saw Final Cut, when they first released it, I purchased it, and I looked at it, and just like everybody else, I don't think I opened it again. That, that day, I think that day or at least a couple days later, I went and started learning Premiere. I was on lynda.com learning Premiere and getting back and familiar with it and all that stuff. I'm like... You know, I don't have time to learn something new. I'm going to use something that still has a timeline. And then I came back to Final Cut, and since then they've made a ton of changes in there, and I continue to be blown away every time I launch it. So it works great now. So, Martin, when you when you look at this, you know, video from the standpoint of a still photographer uh, or the still photographer that's slowly introducing video into his or her workflow – what do you, like from your perspective? What are the tools that you consider, and and what are the challenges with that kind of move? Well, I I basically many years ago when I first started messing around with video, probably when the 5D Mark II came came out, um, I I did you know this one of the sponsors for today. I jumped onto Lynda.com. I learned how to use Premiere because I I was at that time it wasn't Creative Cloud. It was it was the old master suite, but I was still buying the master suite. Um, so I, I'd got the tools, I, uh, and I, I use them today. I, I've not bought Final, um, Final Cut Pro. I think it looks great, and I think if I needed it, I would, I wouldn't hesitate to go and buy it. Um, but because I already have Premiere now as part of the Creative Cloud, right. that's what I always use. And, and I also, I mean, I use After Effects for. Uh, time lapses. I'll go in and and put my put time lapses together in After Effects. I've got it. It's already part of the fifty bucks a month that I'm paying for the for the cloud anyway. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I don't use, I use other applications for still slideshows and things like that, and sometimes drop video into those. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Premiere and After Effects guy, and, and I, right now, I don't have a need to, to try to, to get anything else into my workflow. Yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, once I think that's the that's part of the battle that Apple has to has to deal with is that the built-in like Martin, you're both of you guys, you're artists, right? So in the end, you just want to you don't care about the pixels and the knobs and whizzes and all that stuff. It's just okay, what lets me get from point A to point B the quickest? And Martin, you've already invested in A, paying for the Creative Cloud, and B, figuring out how to do time lapses with After Effects and edit in Premiere. So it's going to, like, what's what's the dynamite that could knock you over into the Final Cut Pro world? Probably not much, right? They have to go nuclear at that point to do that. You know, and then on the other know, side of it, it's, it's we were talking, this whole conversation is centered around Macintosh, right? So Adobe is both, right? So, you know, they could either, they could concede the market to Apple and Final Cut if they wanted to and still be in the game with all the Windows users, right? Yeah. You, you know, one of the other things that I that has almost made me um, go out and pull the trigger on Final Cut Pro is the availability of some pretty cool plugins and you know that there's a, there's a lot of good stuff out there that is only available for Final Cut Pro. Um, and I, you know, I mean that that could be at some point something I say, okay, I've just got to use this particular effect and it's only available for Final Cut Pro, so then I'd jump in. Yeah. Um, right now that's not happened, but that's something to keep in mind as well. What it's like your camera which camera system do you buy into? Do you want a mirrorless? Do you want a Nikon, a Canon, or, or whatever? And it generally doesn't come down to the body, which is the you know, in this case it would be Final Final Cut Pro or Premiere. It's really about the lenses and whether they've got the lenses that you will that you'll be needing on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and if you you know that's why I'm not in mirrorless at this point, lenses and autofocus. But if but as soon as that's there, if there's something that I need, it say say I don't know Sony come out with a, a, a an f2.8 800 millimeter lens for the for the Alpha system. And it and the the autofocus is there and all of that. I'm thinking, oh, well, okay, maybe now it's time to jump into the alpha system. Yeah. So I think it's for me. The other thing is the plugins and the and the 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 ecos ecosphere or whatever it is that is surrounds the product as well as the product itself. Yeah. Martin, that's that's your age talking because you're more experienced now. See, the younger Martin would have been like, you know, what, I'm just gonna go buy it and figure it out later. The more experienced, <laughs> methodical, pragmatic Martin is, you know what, I can wait. I have a perfectly good camera system here right now. I'm gonna wait until they figure it out and then I'll jump in. Right? So yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I've almost literally, I mean, we our current financial or fiscal year for my company ends at the end of the month. And I seriously considered going out and buying into a mirrorless system just to, so that I don't have to pay as much corporate tax. But I, uh, I really just can't, I can't decide on a system because if I'm going to do it, I want one that can get me close to my ultimate goal. And right now, it's not quite there. Um, yeah. But that's because I'm trying to do everything with one system. If I just concentrated on landscape, I would have probably already had a system. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of great stuff happening in the mirrorless world. So in your, from your perspective, you know, bringing it full circle here, video editing system-wise, you're, you're a Premiere user, you're happy with it, it does everything you need it to do, plus you're, you're a subscriber to the Creative Cloud, 
so it's a no-brainer for you. On the Lee Herbert side, you understand and know Premiere, um, worked at Apple, but currently have no affiliation with Apple, but you still know and love and teach Final Cut Pro X, correct? Yes. All right. So so basically, this discussion leads nowhere, because we don't know. <laughs> we don't, oh, no, we no, don't no. know I, what to I, choose, right? I would love to spend half... Martin, let's organize some time offline. I will spend half an hour with you. You'll switch the final cut. We'll sort it out. <laughs> oh, I'm you sure, you, I'm like sure you could get me that. Yeah. Well, uh, love it, love if, it. See, these conversations... If I, got my wife, if I got my wife to marry me, I can convince anyone of anything. <laughs> Well, you know, Martin is in a different country, so the drugs won't work on him. So, <laughs> my, my my brother's in Tokyo right now. I will have him come to your house. Lisa's <laughs> take this pill. Cool. All right, guys. Uh, before we dive into the Q and A, I want to thank our second sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends over at Lynda.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online training platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, just visit lynda.com slash twip. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash T-W-I-P. Now, lynda.com is for problem solvers, creative people, or just people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel or learn negotiation tactics or build a website or even boost your Photoshop skills. Just go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. lynda.com offers a ton of courses on Lightroom, Photoshop, and the Adobe Creative Cloud, and many on just getting inspired or re-inspired about your photography. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, and you can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own schedule. And courses are structured so that you can watch them from start to finish, or you can consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can even download tutorials and watch them on the go from your iOS or Android device. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or just want to learn something new, visit lynda.com slash twip and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash twip. All right, guys, let's jump into the listener Q&A. This week's question is from Morden O'Hare, and this is a pretty long question. I'm going to read it anyway. This is pretty long. Um, he says, I don't make any money out of photography currently, but I have a notion to sell a few limited prints at a point in time when I consider I have a selection of landscape photos. It's good enough. I don't intend on making a living just to make a bit for satisfaction and to recoup my, recoup my costs. I have made uh, some half-hearted attempts to have an internet social media presence with Facebook, 500 pics, and a blog I've been writing on regularly for several years and on my website, but I find it hard to be consistent with it due to time constraints. My question is, uh, ellipsis, uh, is this a waste of time or a waste of my limited time? It seems to me that most of the photographic social media interaction backslapping and internet traffic come from other photographers, which is fine if I was wanting to sell tours, but there doesn't seem to be any path to print sales. I'm not even sure many people sell prints off their websites. 
would I be better off saving my time and ditching all of the social media blogging stuff and just wait patiently until I can get a range of high-quality prints into a local gallery of local scenery? For example, ditch my online ego and go it the old-fashioned way. Martin Bailey, you're the print expert. You run workshops. You got a massive online social footprint. What or how would you advise Morden O'Hare on how to proceed? Should he kill his social media persona and become an offline person, or is there a pathway that could serve both, you know, both masters? Um. So first, firstly, uh, hi Morden. I, I know Morden. I've you know we've we've communicated online a lot. So oh. I yeah, uh, I already already know him. Um, we, I think. He's in many ways is hitting a nail on the head. Um, the the first thing that that I thought as I as I read this question as well is, uh, you know, he talks about how he's not being able to be consistent due to time time constraints. Um, if you really did want to to build a social following, you have to commit to it. And I mean, I know remember we we laughed a, a while back about. Um, how I, I advised Valerie not to do a podcast unless she was able to commit to do it every week, at least once a week. Um, it is a big commitment. I started out um, on Sunday creating this week's podcast, my own podcast. It took me a day longer than I thought. and it, So it's taken two and a half days to do one episode this week. That's a lot of commitment. Yeah. Um, if that was even if that was just a blog post, if I didn't record it, it would have taken me just under that. It's only an hour or so more to record and release. So for me, it is a big commitment, and I try to do it every week when I'm not traveling. So yes, if you want to do that, if you want to make that commitment, then go ahead. It will help in some ways. But Morden is correct in that you know other photographers don't buy prints so much. Um, you know, you, I, I sell maybe a handful of prints a month and I've got a reasonable social footprint. Um, some months I, I only sell a couple, some months I, I'll sell a few more. And I'm, I'm not retiring on my print sales, for sure. Now, there, there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is, I mean, it might be just that my photography's crap, so, so <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to try and make it that I, I, you know, make out that I could sell more. Yeah. Um, but one of the main reasons, and this is also what Morden talk, uh, touches on, is that for me, there's people in Japan don't buy prints. The majority, in, in fact, I've only sold three prints domestically, and, and the other hun couple of hundred or so have all gone overseas. So I, uh, I, I, I think that there's definitely something, something to do with your location, mm -hmm. and he also touches on something that I, I had a conversation once, um, not so long ago, with the someone very high up, or probably as high as you can get, in a particular um, media company, um, as in print media company. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mention the name, um, but I was told a story about someone that uh, I think I might have relayed this on on Twip in the past as well. But uh, the there was a guy that was that was going out making beautiful work in the US making beautiful work and and trying to sell it in fairs around the country um, art fairs and he he wasn't selling them very much at all and and that's even when you've got a market there are people there that want to buy you know people are going to these places to buy prints if you see something beautiful you would think they'd buy it. it doesn't always happen 
and what the guy did was he started to take photographs while he while he was traveling around the country in certain areas for these for these art fairs and and trying to sell his work on the weekends he would spend some time there and photograph and then he started to take those photographs and print them for the next time he was in that region in the next year that's probably oh. the same fair yeah and then what happened was those photographs started to sell and he found that his beautiful fine art prints that he's been doing of it, of what he wants to shoot are no longer really a part of his business. He's, he's concentrating on shooting in a specific area and then selling photographs, prints of that area at prints as he, as he visits. And this is what Morden talks on at the, at the end, you know, to, quality prints into a local gallery of local scenery. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily think it's, it needs to be a gallery, although that might work. But I think for sure, you, you need to be one of the biggest ways to sell prints in fairs is to photograph the area that you're actually working from. It's like people go to Yosemite. They're not going to they're not going to go go away. They, they walk into a gallery there and see a beautiful print of, of a scene in Yosemite. They're going to want that as opposed to something else. You know, it's it's a memento of a visit. And people love to love to hang out of their local area. They've got more. They can relate to it more. So I think for sure. I mean, it, the the online presence is important, but not when it comes to selling prints necessarily. People will buy prints. A lot of people I know buy my prints because they know they know me. They they want to invest in a bit of me, and they want to help me sometimes. You know, the, it's like buying the, buying an artist's art is is a great way to to support them. That's certainly a part of it. So it's not to be ruled out, and I think if you if you do start to set up a store, an online store, then keep plugging at it. It it can be fun, but if you don't find it to be fun, if you don't enjoy doing that kind of social networking and things like that, then you know don't pull your hair out over it. I, I literally I, the first thing I would do would would be to concentrate on finding out where you can sell prints locally, shoot local scenes. And try to try to work from there, and then if you find that you get a bit of traction, you know, even local coffee shops—it doesn't necessarily need to be a gallery. Um, coffee shops, places like that—they'll often say, you know, you you decorate their walls for them, in um, in return for putting a price tag on the bottom of each each print and some some name cards or or a brochure at the, at the cash register. Um, you might even do a you know something where you pay them a, a percentage for for anything that you sell. Of course, yeah. But yeah. So, so there's lots of ways of doing it. But I think yeah, if if you want to sell prints online to other photographers, is not the best way to do it. I've always wondered about that though. I mean, the you know I see prints in coffee shops and different you know restaurants in in the area that I live in all the time, and I wonder I always wonder do those sell? Like do people? Because yeah. I don't I don't think I've mm. ever purchased a print from a coffee mm. shop like I'm sitting there and like oh I may look up and say oh that's a really nice shot and then go back to what I'm doing I never look up and say oh that's a really nice shot I need to have that on my wall in my house let me purchase that I never I've never done mm. that conversely if I came to your site and I saw something from my local area I'd probably buy it you know like oh wow you know so that's mm. the the social versus terrestrial thing I don't know Lee what what about you I mean you know you're you're more on the video side and less on the print side but do you have an opinion on this I've got an opinion on everything. <laughs> Whether it be right or wrong. Uh, right? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Lee, when I want you to have an opinion, I'll give it to you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I kid. my, 
my wife is watching, so I won't make a comment that'll get me into trouble later. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, first of all, I think uh, the one thing that I thought of when I saw this in the notes is definitely uh, what Martin said, the coffee shops, I think is a great one. Um, and, and my next point will probably, at least the coffee shop as well, in terms of the online online ego stuff, I think there is a certain element to that in the sense of it, it's all marketing. And marketing, like sales, it's a numbers game. So from a numbers point of view, I think you still want to be out there and you still want to be doing stuff because that's going to build your audience. And if you're going to do a gallery, um, particularly if you want to be in one of the, the larger galleries, I've got a lot of friends who are photographers, if you want to be in that larger gallery, you've got to have a name. You know, they're not just going to put anyone into the gallery. Um, the other thing is, keep, like Martin said, absolutely keep it up regularly. I'm very good at giving that advice as opposed to doing it myself, but you've got to keep it up regularly. And the other thing is, make your marketing more targeted. So if you're finding that it's mainly other photographers who are following you and they're not your target market, well then have a think about what could I be doing differently? Could I be maybe posting on Pinterest instead of Google Plus? Or should I be posting on Instagram instead of Facebook? And what is it that you're posting? Even with the coffee shops, you know, go and find a more upscale coffee shop in a more upscale neighborhood because generally the clients who are going to go into that coffee shop are going to have more disposable income where if they see a print on the wall and they go, oh, yeah, 500 bucks, yeah, no worries, I'll, I'll take it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think keep it up but but be smart about it and, and make it as targeted as possible. Be strategic about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So we should do a – as you guys were talking, I was saying we should probably do a whole show on – I mean, Martin, we've done a show on prints, but we should do a show on prints and galleries and, you know, both online and offline and what the options are and best practices. In fact, Martin, that might be a book in there for you. Since you already did a book on an <laughs> ebook on printing with Craft and Vision, maybe there's another book on taking it to the next level in terms of printing out your gallery installation or something. Mm, yeah. I'm managing yeah, Good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, you with with your comment about that you giving Lee his opinion earlier, you reminded me of our mutual friend David Dushman when you said that he he'll often say you shut up when you're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, our mutual friend David Dushman is an ex-comedian, much like uh, our mutual co-host on this show, Mr. Lee Herbert, ex-comedian. So uh, yeah, they have that yeah. wit, that wit. Yeah. Just, he got yeah. Oh, him. he's sharp. It's it's great. I mean, we we did we did my. Um, my Hokkaido landscape tour with David this year, and it's just a, it's a like, it's like sitting with, with a, you know, I mean, he is, he's still a comedian. Um, he's an amazing guy, but he's still a comedian, and he sits, be, he sat behind me on the bus, and I was just crying with laughter most of the time. I love it. I love Great. it. Yeah, I need to, we need to get him back on Twip again and do a, do a touch base. All right, guys, let's, uh, we're running a little bit long. Let's dive into the picks of the week. This, this segment is where you guys can mention something to the TWIP army as long as, it is, as, long as it's related to photography somehow. So, Lee, uh, I'm going to let you go first. What's your pick of the week? Cool. So my pick of the week, I'm not sure if this has been picked before because I haven't listened to every episode, but my pick is Trigger Trap. And has that been on before? I don't think so. I think the first time I heard about it was in your webinar. Oh, fantastic. So Trigger Trap are a company who make these cool little adapters that you can plug into your smartphone or tablet or smart device and use them as a remote trigger for your cameras. And you get different connectors depending on which camera you got. So you got Nikon, Canon, Panasonic, Sony, all that. And so to begin with, you can use it just as a remote shutter release. So 
um, it can release on sound, so you could clap, and that'll cause your camera to take the photo. You could do it over Wi-Fi and send it out. Um, but they've also got some really cool time-lapse functions built in, and they actually just released a second... They've got good time-lapse functions in their free app, but they also released a paid-for app that's specifically designed for time-lapse photography where you can almost build your time-lapse settings as modules. So um, they actually just released that a couple of days ago, which I'm really excited about. So, so if anyone's interested in remote triggering their cameras um, or using these as controls for time-lapse if your camera doesn't have um, an intervalometer built in, it's a really cool thing to have. One little tip that I'll give you with it is if you're going to be doing time-lapses, you do have to leave the app open on your phone for this to keep working, and that's obviously going to suck the battery dry. So what I did is I actually went out, well, I did this because I used to have staff discount. I just bought a spare iPod Touch, and I used that as my little intervalometer, or use an iPad because the battery's going to last you a lot longer on that. Very cool. And what, what was the price of this thing? Um, it depends what cable you get it with for your camera, um, but I think it's about it's in the sort of fifty to seventy dollar region. Okay, so not bad. And then and it seems like it would probably last forever if you treat it properly, right? Yeah, and and the the really great thing that there's a couple of different different ones out there. The thing that I really like about Trigger Trap is that you buy the dongle, and if mm. you have multiple camera systems, you buy different cables for the different systems, so you don't have to buy a new one for every camera system you've got, you just buy a new cable for every okay. camera system you've got. So it's a bit oh, good. So you keep the brains, the brains are separate than the connecting mechanism, which is good. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very no, cool. I've, I've been using one of those. Mine, mine's been to Antarctica and all over the place, so I can wow. vouch oh. for, the, for the build of the things. They, they're good. I, I've had mine a number of years. It's a secret. It's a secret weapon for photographers, because until you mentioned it, Lee, the first time during the webinar, I had no idea that that existed. Now I know how all you pros that do these awesome looking time lapses do it. It's that thing. <laughs> That's the secret yeah. weapon. So. And you can see I'm an old timer because I got the black one, which was the Kickstarter one. The, the, the new ones are red, which are really, I'm, I'm tempted yeah. just to buy it because I, I really like the red one. <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. red, red's my favorite color yeah. too. Yeah, cool. me too. Awesome. I'm, I'm, mine's the black one. I wish I'd got the red one. All right, yeah. well, I'll have bragging rights when mine shows up. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Lee, thanks, man. That's a perfect pick of the week. All right, Mr. Martin Bailey, what is your pick of the week? Okay, um, I, I recently upgraded to the Mark II of the Artist's Viewfinder. I mean, this, is, this has become quite an expensive app, but it's basically what it does is it gives you the ability to use your iPhone to just see how much of a scene you would be cropping down to with various focal lengths. And... I honestly, I mean, I use this for teaching more than I use it for actual, you know, for what it's for. But it's great to be able to, you know, you're you're trying to talk to someone about how the focal length affects the scene that you're looking at. Um, but as a as a, an app for actually going out and planning shoots, it's great. It if you take photos with this while you've got the app open, you know, you you basically program in the various focal lengths that you want to shoot at. So I do like uh, 24, 35, uh, 50 millimeters, 70, 100, and just a few in right up to 560 millimeters, which is the, the longest focal length that my cameras or my lenses give me. Um, and then it, you, you also program in your cameras. So I have the 17 Mark II, which is a crop factor camera. 
I've got the 1DX and the 5D Mark III. And you just, I mean, obviously the 5D, the 5D and the 1D are both full frame, so it doesn't change. But you, on the tap of a few buttons, you can also show the effect of the crop factor, and it all just sort of really, it, it just gives you a great representation of what you'll see uh, on the on the on the you know the screen of the iPhone. But the other thing is, is that if you actually take photos there, it'll embed all of that information into the photos and GPS and stuff like that. So it helps for planning trips as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I think it's yeah it's uh, right now it's eighteen nineteen uh, nineteen pounds twenty five dollars basically. So it's not a cheap app for, for what it is, but it's I, you know I, I enjoy using it. Um, and if you teach photography, it's it's a helpful tool as well. Love it, love it. Yeah, these are again. These are those those little known tools that pros use, right? That you have in your you you know you have a directory of these or a folder on your phone. That there's these little things that add a little bit of, of functionality, like the or functionality, like the uh, what's the other one that I use? The photographer's ephemeris, right? That, oh, that's mm. so good. Right? I mean, it's perfect. I mean, you can you know see sunsets, sunrises, where it's going to happen, all this stuff on a certain date at a, from a certain vantage point, so that you can do that pre-planning, like we always talk about. Yeah. I also use this app for video. Like I've got a um, I've got a location scouting gig tomorrow where I'm actually going to a location that I'll be filming a corporate shoot at next week, and mm -hmm. yeah, just having that on my phone so I can just check out my shot and I can actually storyboard with this app. So um, yeah, even for video production, it's really useful. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. The tools that we have available. I mean, remember remember in the old days we had to use a farmer's almanac. And now, now, now we have apps that back, do all this Back stuff in my day, we had to write the almanac. I'm trying to resist saying in my day. It's still my day, damn it. <laughs> It'll be my day until I die. How about that? All right, guys. So my my pick of the week is, um, I mean, it's it's. It, I guess it could be as cool as you guys. So I'm in the process of liquidating a lot of my old stuff, like my old, uh, some of my old camera gear, um, some old tablets that I had, you know, just stuff that's just sitting around my house making me feel bad because it's depreciating. So I'm using this service, and let me screen share this. I'm using this service, uh, you may have heard of it, where's the window, here it is, um, called Amazon FBA. So FBA stands for Fulfillment by Amazon. So this is, the, if you haven't heard about this, this is one of the coolest things in the world to me because this is how it works essentially. So, turns out that Amazon has a few products on their site, right? <laughs> to, the tune, to the tune of millions. So, unlike eBay, when you go to eBay and you list something, you got to go take your pictures of your thing and make sure it's good and the lighting and they write your description and all that stuff. With Fulfillment by Amazon, they have an app, the Amazon Sellers app. You get the thing that you're selling, you scan its barcode, whether it's a book or whatever, or if it doesn't have a barcode, you search for it, you find it, and then you say, list it. <laughs> then you push a button that says, list it. That's it. And then it gives you this little screen. You could say, you can pick the price that you want to list it at, or you can say, match the lowest selling price of this thing, so, the, you know, so you're not, you know, like, shoot in the air. You just say, match the existing, you know, the lowest selling price, boom, you're done. But this is where it gets interesting because in the old days, like with eBay, you do that and then, okay, somebody bought it. If you manage to navigate your way around the Nigerian scammers and all that stuff, you know, you, you finally sell it on eBay. Then you got to go to the store, you know, up to the UPS store or FedEx, whatever, and ship it and box it and all this stuff. With Amazon, 
the way this particular service works is what I did, this is just last night. This is a night in the life of Fritter. So I had this pile of stuff sitting on my kitchen counter, scanned it all in, boxed it all up, and it, basically the flow is you scan everything and you print labels, like little barcode labels to put on the boxes and all this stuff. So I did all that. It took me about an hour to do about 30 items, right? So you box all that stuff up. Amazon prints labels. So in... And apparently they have some sort of magical deal with UPS because I had a 30-pound box that cost me about $7 to ship. So, so you, print out, you print out the label, and then you ship it to Amazon. Then it lists it, and they sell it, and they deposit the money in your account. That's it. Just like that. So you take this – you spend a couple of hours gathering up all your old crap. You get it ready. You send it in Amazon. They sell it for you, and they give you the money. You know, it <laughs> is just, crap. it's just, yeah, well, I mean, you know, one man's crap, right? So yeah, yeah. it's just brilliant the way it works because, you know, the stuff just accumulates over time. You're like, oh, I bought this thing. Oh, I forgot about that thing. And now I'm like going through my house, finding things. For example, here's an example. Uh, let me step the screen here. So I, uh, you know, I have Drobos. The, the Drobos run my, you know, all my, all my files and everything are stored on Drobos back there, two of them. And but they fill up from time to time. So over the years, I've been when they fill up, it'll say, okay, you need to increase your storage. So take out this drive, the one terabyte drive, terabyte drive, and swap it out for something bigger. So what that leaves you with is a stack of drives <laughs> that you can't use for anything unless you put in by another enclosure or whatever. So I ended up having the stack of drives. So I'm like, you know, yesterday after I made that shipment, I boxed everything up. I'm like, I wonder if those little one terabyte Western digital black drives are worth anything. I mean, they're perfectly fine. They didn't fail or anything. They're just, you know, I just ran out of space on them. So I scan those things in, and it turns out I can get like $60 each or something for them. You know, and this is after <laughs> Amazon's fees, when they were just like literally going to be thrown away or something. And I had like 12 of them. <laughs> so I'm like, what, what that's a camera. Take, What's that? Fred, what percentage do Amazon take? They well, you, like that's the cool thing about that sellers app because you scan it's an iPhone app. You scan, I'm sure they have Android too, but you scan the the barcode, and depending on the product, it it's a different percentage or a different amount that they take out for shipping and all that. But it tells you exactly how much you're going to receive, you know. Wow. So it tells you what their deduction is for storage and blah blah blah, whatever their their fees are. It tells you all that, and then says for this thing, if it sells, you will receive this much money. Done. Wow. You know, and you put it up there. Now I had Sounds some experience great. with Amazon last year. I sold, um, I sold. A, I think it was a laptop or something. Yeah, it was a laptop. I sold an app, a laptop on there, but I didn't use the fulfillment service. I used the if it sells, tell me and I'll ship it because I didn't trust them. Right. So I'm like, okay, and that worked. I put a laptop up there. This is the first time I used it. I put a, a MacBook Pro. I think it was an 11 inch Air or something. I put it up there. And I'm like, okay, I'll let it sit for a week or so. We'll see how it goes. If not, you know, whatever. I think less than 24 hours later, it was sold. <laughs> wow. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. this is kind of cool. You know, I didn't have to really do anything except scan it. You know, you scan it and then put it in the box and take it to UPS and say ship it. And that was it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, wow. that's my pick of the week, especially for photographers that have a bunch of stuff that's just lying around that they want to get rid of or, you know, you, you need extra cash to fund that next Nikon, you know, mirrorless camera that you want to buy. Use a service like this. Go to your house and find a bunch of crap, put it up there. <laughs> you know, maybe not crap, but good stuff. Put it up there and, and let Amazon sell it for you. 
they even, I mean, even your old books, like these books behind me, you can scan the UPC code and, uh, you know, send it in, and they'll sell it as a used book for you, and you're done. So, hmm. anyway, I thought it was pretty interesting, especially in the context of photographers, because we tend to accumulate lots and lots of, of gear and stuff that we don't need over time. Um, but there's there was one caveat that I wanted to share, and that's that uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what the letter of the law is, but they don't allow you to ship clothing or anything like that. So, And I guess camera bags kind of fit into that clothing space because me, you know, I was thinking, mm. oh, man, this is brilliant. I have a closet full of camera bags that I never use. Maybe I can just liquidate all of these and get rid of them. Nope, denied, can't put them up there. Because yeah. you could put them up there, but they have to be in new condition, you know, like mm. brand new. Like an Amazon new is different than an eBay new. So new on Amazon means new, new. It is factory sealed with all unused. that stuff. Yeah, yeah unused well, well, new. Well, well, Frederick, be because I like you to help you out, I can give you my address and you can send me all those bags. Uh, you know what? I might just do that if you pay for shipping because shipping down under ain't cheap. The wife will kill me. The wife will kill me. <laughs> Exactly. We put on a slow boat. It'll get there sometime <laughs> in 2018. <laughs> so, so cool. So anyway, that's my pick of the week. Amazon FBA. You can get to them at amazon.com slash FBA. Fulfillment by Amazon. Coolest service in the world. So very happy with it so far. So, but I'll, I'll keep you guys posted because I sent the, the boxes that I packed up yesterday. I, I dropped them off today. Um, and it's interesting because they have this deal with UPS and I printed the label. As soon as I dropped them off, they were in the system. I looked on my phone and like, boop, there they are. You know, it's in the system tracking. And they go off to the Amazon megalithic fulfillment centers around the country and then or around the world actually. And then they they sell from there. So, interesting, interesting stuff. Cool. All right, guys, we are at the end of another episode of this week in photo. Before we sign off, Martin, what do you have coming up? What's uh, what's on the Martin Bailey schedule of events? I've just booked my flights for this year's Namibia tour. Um, Namibia full circle with my friend Jeremy Woodhouse. That's going to be in August. And I've got a couple of places left on my Iceland tour at the towards the end of September as well. So they're the next two big um, tours. I've, I've got my Pixels to Pigment in-studio um, printing and color management workshop I've just set up a new one in May. If anyone's in Tokyo, uh, come and we, we get up to four people in this little office studio here and and do the uh, the pixels to pigment workshop. So that's coming up as well. Um, but yeah, uh, just continuing to podcast. Um, just put out a, a a very in depth discussion on how I'm now using a Drobo Mini as my main library, my main store for my Lightroom catalog. And that's enabling me to take it from computer to computer. It all just opens from the Drobo Mini. Um, and that's, so I've just put an episode up about that yesterday as well. Uh, cool. And links to everything are at martinbaileyphotography.com. martinbaileyphotography.com. And in a couple of weeks, we may have some, some TWIP slash Martin Bailey news to reveal to the world, right? Some collaborative yeah. news. So Absolutely. I'm excited. Looking forward to it. Yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy world we live in. <laughs> Yeah. Cool, Martin. Thanks for coming on, man. It's always a pleasure having you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. All right, Mr. Lee Herbert, what is uh, what's going on in your world? What do you have scheduled coming up? 
Well, um, we just finished uh, the time-lapse webinar on TWIP last week, and that's, I believe, up and live. So if anyone wants to learn a little bit about time-lapse, go check that out. Uh, we've got a few more of those coming up. We haven't set dates yet, but we've got some pretty exciting stuff uh, coming up on TWIP webinars for talking about more things that photographers can learn using Final Cut Pro and, and video production. For myself, I've got some courses coming up that I'm running in, I think, towards the end of April, May, and June. Um, that uh, I ran these, these workshops for Canon last year, teaching photographers a two-day workshop on how to move from stills to motion, so teaching you all about you know, how to shoot video, light video, audio production, and then day two is all hands-on actually editing the stuff that you shot on day one. So I'm running two of those workshops myself later on uh, this year, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. And so, yeah, all the details will be, well, they're on my website right now, so just capturingpassion.com. Um, yeah, we'll have lo lots more of those workshops coming up later in the year if you miss these ones. Excellent, excellent, and we'll we'll link to everybody from the from Twip. But your your website is capturingpassion.com, right? That's me. Excellent, excellent, cool, and um, yeah, I guess that we're at the end of the show. For me, the only thing that I wanted to mention to to the Twip Army out there is we're just now establishing a Facebook group. So we're going to actually have two groups established. The public group is now public. You can get to it at thisweekinphoto.com/slash/facebook. And that'll redirect you over to our brand new Facebook group. So please go in there and you know interact with us and ask questions and post images and all that stuff there. Um, we are embracing Facebook. You know we are now embracing our Facebook overlords. Um, but then also we are establishing a private group as well for the This Week in Photo members. So if you're a member of This Week in Photo, you'll be getting an email soon inviting you into the private Facebook Twip group where some you know, behind the scenes stuff will happen, you know, so, and, and uh, uh, basically there'll be, you know, beside the, behind the scenes information that's shared out, plus we'll be doing a weekly private hangout for TWIP members only, kind of like a closed door mastermind session for TWIP members, so definitely check that out, keep an eye out for that, it'll be on the website, You'll have, we'll have links to everything there in the blog post for this episode and uh, on This Week in Photo in general, so... Lots of fun things happening in the TWIP universe. But we're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. I want to thank our sponsors for their support, our friends at FreshBooks.com and Lynda.com. And again, be sure to visit us at our website at ThisWeekInPhoto.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. Weekend Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. <laughs>